So I uh, enjoy rock and roll music. I'm not a massive music person where, where I've got, you know, a real, I'm not, not a connoisseur or anything like that, but I like rock and roll. And uh, when I was, you know, they say that when you're young, 10 to 12, 10 to 13, the music that you listen to then kind of forms your tastes for later in life. And so as a teenager, and it was like 1988, 89, and then into the 90s, you know, there was some, you know, eclectic kind of mix of music that I got into. I did really enjoyed rock and roll and, and a lot of Phil Collins stuff in the 80s that really influenced me. And then into the 90s, crazy weird rap music and hip hop, 90, kind of 90s, that, you know, the, the, the history of rap stuff that you see Jimmy Fallon talking about. But I can listen to a lot of rock and roll music um, uh, f- for a long time and find it enjoyable. Susan would say to me, I don't know how you can listen to that for very long because after about two to three songs, it all sounds the same. I can't actually tell, you know, if the song has changed. It just sounds all the same to me. Well, just the other day, we were driving in the car, and uh, we were listening to U2, and, um, and Susan loves U2, and uh, grew up listening to tons of U2, and massive U2 fan. And all of a sudden, I stopped. We were having a conversation in the car as a family, as the music's playing, and I turned to Susan. I said, you know how you always say to me, all rock and roll music sounds the same. I go, I hate to say this, but I think we're five or six songs in and I can't tell if this is the first U2 song, the fifth and so And she goes, <gasps> and uh, it was touch and go for a while whether our marriage was going to make it. Uh, we're seeing a therapist. And, um, but anyways, I, uh, what I realized is that uh, with U2, you know, um, there's this you know, tremendous song um, that everybody knows the lyrics to, even if you don't know to you too, and it's, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, which sounds a lot like I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Our text for today is chapter 5, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And we've been going chapter by chapter and kind of exploring the wisdom of this literature through the lens of the cross, the lens of the grace of Jesus, looking back and seeing how it guides us because Ecclesiastes is not a book that is like a Thanksgiving meal um, that fills you. It's like an eyewash station that cleanses you. You don't walk away from reading Ecclesiastes feeling satisfied. You actually walk away having your eyes purged so you can be very thoughtful about why you're not satisfied. And so we, of course, look at this as we do all texts through uh, the, the lens of the cross and the grace of Jesus so that we can uh, uh, be encouraged and, and in our flourishing and be guided in our lives. And uh, because ultimately what's going on here is, and I've said this many times through this study, is that God is not, did not give us this book to, uh, to lead us into depression, but the tone of the book is depression. So God's way of leading us out of depression is to get us to look very thoughtfully about our discontentment, confront our discontentment in this life under the sun so that we would turn to his grace to find hope in the God who created the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Be prudent when you go to the house of God. To draw near to hear is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For fools don't know that they're doing evil. Don't be rash with your mouth or your heart, making hasty, unthoughtful promises to God. After all, God's in heaven and you're here on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
Too much activity gives you restless dreams, and too many words make you a fool. When you make a promise to God, do not delay in keeping it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Keep the promises that you make to him. And now verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also meaningless. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the work with which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his work, this is the gift from the hand of God. This is God's word. Now for five chapters leading up to this, Solomon has been in a thought experiment. He's been sitting in the perspective of a person who does not think that there is a God. They're not sure. It's the secular person, the person that says, we can't know if there's a God we can't know if there's an afterlife. All we have is the moment, so we got to live for the moment. It seems logical, but Solomon began to actually live out that thought experiment as a philosopher. And so there was, you know, he did his own stunts, as I said a couple of weeks ago. There's no philosophical green screens. He doesn't just sit down and say, kind of, this is what I think. He actually, because he was the king, part of, not even part of the 1%, but Solomon was like the 0.01%. He had all the resources at his disposal to do this. So he builds houses and, and, and pools and plants vineyards, and he has all the food that he wants, parties that he could want, sex that you want. He's got everything that you want. And he sits down very thoughtfully and he asks, did this infuse my life with meaning? And the answer is no. Even though I have everything that you could dream of, there's a pervasive sense of meaninglessness. There's a pervasive sense of emptiness. As I'm nursing my hangover, I don't feel like my life has any more meaning. So he, he finds a problem with pleasure, but then he moves on to work. He says, okay, well then let's work hard, be wise, human achievement endeavor. And he moves to work and he realizes that doesn't satisfy him either because number one, it doesn't have the identity payoff he's looking for and he still feels empty. Number two, work is endless. So you can't find meaning on a, living your life on a performance evaluation that never ends. Getting on a treadmill with no off switch and constantly you know, going through life in a dance audition where people just continually judge you and whatever number comes up, that's how you're supposed to get your sense of meaning and identity. So he says there's no, ple- there's, there's no fulfillment and in pleasure, that fails you, and there's no pleasure in work, because there's no end to that, and that fails you, and besides, I'm going to die, and everything I worked for, I don't get to take with me, there's no U-Hauls going to the graveyard, so that means everything I worked for is going to go to a fool, and then the third thing is he says, now I'm really frustrated because I'm seeing injustice, not just injustice in the world with the with those with power oppressing those with no power, that's infuriating, not only am I frustrated by injustice because I'm looking where I would expect to find Justice, and I'm finding, uh, I'm finding uh, unrighteousness, and that's infuriating. But there's an injustice in suffering, because what he's what, up until chapter five, what he's saying is, you'd think it makes sense that if you just were a good person and you lived well and you did the right thing, that you would be rewarded by the universe for your ethics and karma would be favorable and you'd have a good life. But he looks out and he says, suffering is unjust because the good guy and the bad guy get the same thing. Bad things happen to good people all the time. 
Good people are being hurt, oppressed, taken advantage of. Solomon looks through the corridor of human history and he says, this is a huge problem. And then he looks at the world that he's living in and he goes, I'm still seeing a huge problem. And so he's really frustrated by the injustice of suffering. Suffering doesn't just hit evil people. Suffering doesn't just... And it infuriates us. And these are the kinds of ways we talk about things. Oh, I can't believe that person got sick. They're such a beautiful person. I can't believe that person died of this horrifying disease. They're so generous. And we hate it and it bothers us and it bothered him. So this is why Solomon keeps going, well, this is really meaningless here. And then, of course, the the capstone on all of his meaninglessness, which is what the last thing I want to say before we unpack chapter 5 here, is death. So Solomon goes, I'm really frustrated that if there is no God and there is no afterlife, and all there was was an ocean of time before I got here, and there's going to be an ocean of time after I'm gone, then nothing that I say matters actually matters. Because in a billion years, everything that I, all, all, of, all of my values, ethics, and achievements have been washed away in an ocean of time. So it really doesn't matter which side of ethics you're on. It really doesn't matter whether you live your life as a philanthropist or an oppressor of the poor. It doesn't matter if you stand up for the weak or you eat the weak, because in a billion years, there's no record that human history was ever, ever existed. And Solomon keeps using this, this term, under the earth, under the sun, I'm sorry, under the sun, as a way of saying if there was only natural uh, history and there's no God, uh, then eventually death is taking away everything that we say matters. So that's what, that's what we get until we get to here. But then when you get to chapter 5, he breaks the fourth wall. And Solomon turns from all of that, and in a rare moment, he talks about God. Because up until now, for five chapters, he's like, let's just suppose there is no God. And now he turns and he starts talking about God. And he provokes us to consider, you know what, there is a God. And if there is a God, then there would be a reasonable way to approach him and find meaning in him and relate to him. So in verse 1, he says, be prudent when you come to the house of God. Prudent means to be thoughtful. Right? To be watchful. Solomon is saying, because there is more than life under the sun, because there is a God, who created the son, then it only stands to reason that the way to approach him and the way to train our children to approach him is with hearts that are willing to listen to him. And the text goes on to say, to draw near to hear is better to offer the, sac- the sacrifice of fools. So there's a huge contrast between two people coming to worship. A person who's postured to hear and a fool making a sacrifice. And so he gives us that uh, uh, that paradox on purpose. Have you ever, do you remember when you were a kid and your parents tried to teach you to do something and they're like, okay, now hold the fishing pole like this, or, okay, hold the hammer like that, or hold the hockey stick like that, or when you're using the stove, you have to turn, and partway through, you're so anxious to do it, you're like, I know, uh, I know. Uh. When little kids know, think they know something, the word know is actually two syllables, I know. Uh. And so, because, they're, because this, is, this is what naivety does. And so what Solomon is doing is he goes, you know, there's two ways to come to God. You can come to him with a prudent posture, like I'm going to hear, and you can come like, I know. You come to church before the text is even opened, I know what I think about life, ethics, the world that I live in, I know a fool. And so here's the paradigm, here, here's the juxtaposition. One who's in awe desires the wise guidance of God's word. The fool who has no desire for the guidance of God's word because they're obsessing over their own words. Right? Solomon actually, it's like a cartoon. Think of it this way. Massive philosophical treatise talking about huge things like suffering and justice, you know, uh, the, the political paradigm of the time. I mean, massive themes. And then all of a sudden there's like a little two-frame cartoon like in the middle of the newspaper. That's what he does here in verses 2 and 3. It's like a cartoon. 
He goes, oh, let me paint a picture for you. Because Hebrew is a visual language. It wants you to invite things. So in the two-frame cartoon, in the first frame, you've got God, the omnipotent creator of the universe, and uh, then you've got two worshipers coming into his presence. And then the text says, when you come before this God that created everything, and you... And you're made of dirt. You're not going to be here very long. Cosmically speaking, it's like a second. Your life is over. So you're, now you're coming to this eternal God who's offering you something eternal. And these two worshipers come in and the first worshiper postures himself and says, let my words be few. Let me receive from the grace of this God. What does he have to say to me? And the second worshiper comes in. Blah, 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 and then and then in the second cartoon box, there's no, there's no room in the caption for God to say anything because the whole thing is taken up with and this guy just won't shut up. That's the picture of verses 2 and 3. And Solomon's going, I've thought about life very, very deeply and I'm thinking that if there is a God and there's more than this life under the sun, there's got to be a way that we would approach him and it would be logical that we would have this posture of hearing. To hear in the Hebrew is the word shama. And... Um, Shema means more than just to have sound go in and bounce off your eardrum. Shema, uh, it's got a double force in the Hebrew. It means to hear God, or desire to, desire to hear God, because that's what the text says. Desire to hear him coming. It means that you're listening with an, in, with an intent to obey what God says. You're listening, you're already postured to obey. And um, so you see, what Solomon is provoking is, hmm, if there's more than this short life, and I should posture my whole way of relating to God that I desire to hear from him because I won't be here long. So the, so the wise person would say, I want to hear from God. The fool, by contrast, uh, doesn't let their words be few. They can't stop talking. And so in, the fool isn't interested in what God thinks because the fool lives in an echo chamber and the fool is only interested in voices that repeat back to them what they already think. Is what Solomon gives us here. The person being quiet, saying, Lord, speak to me. And the fool in the echo chamber saying, not really interested in what God has to say about anything, because I've already decided how the world works. And if God happens to see something that I agree with, then that would be good. This is the picture. This is the, the comic that, that he gives us, this two-frame comic in the middle. Have you ever had secondhand embarrassment for someone who is in a situation where they should not be talking and they can't stop talking? Have you ever been that person? I've been the person... I've, have you ever been driving home from something be, saying, why did I talk so much? Why did I say that? Oh, why didn't I just say Have you ever been that? I've been that person. And then have you ever watched somebody else be that person? And you're just like, it's so cringy. You're like, oh, shut up. You're so out of your depth. Would you? Right? Like we know what that feels like, right? So Solomon wants us to see that about our way... The, the God of grace who wrote himself into human history, 33 AD on a Roman cross, incarnates himself in Jesus Christ, doesn't just come as our example, but our savior, because we didn't need any more examples. We had plenty of examples. He comes as our savior. And so, yes, he is our example, but he comes and he takes all of our sin and he rises again on the, on the third day. Solomon doesn't have any of this, by the way, but we do. So we look back on this text and we go, okay, we have even more information to work on than Solomon did. The God of great grace comes and he takes all of your sin. He eradicates it. He justifies you. Even though you don't deserve it, God looks on you and he says, you're forgiven and free. So how then would we posture ourselves because of that 
scandalous grace to come before God. So Solomon, he doesn't even have the resurrection to deal with, but he's just thinking about this logically. And he's thinking, wow, secondhand embarrassment for the fool that doesn't want to posture themselves and receive uh, from God. So the, the sacrifice of fools, the word sacrifice in the, in the Hebrew is zabah, which was a particular sacrifice where you would actually serve the, serve the animal in a, in a uh, festive meal. Like today's Thanksgiving, and I have a festive meal. So the zabah is like a Thanksgiving meal. And so what Solomon is saying is, if you've really not postured your heart to hear from God with an intent to obey and listen to him, then it's like serving up this meaningless festivity. You're celebrating nothing because you're thoughtless in your way of worship. This is the picture that he is uh, kind of painting here. It's like... Um, I'm going to give you one final image for the kids who are like, maybe the kids in here are like, I can't follow what in the world you're saying. Imagine two hockey coaches get to go to the next Leafs game. And then, wow, I got Leafs tickets. But then there's a little letter on the back of the ticket to the Leafs game. And the letter says, after the game, you get to go down into the dressing room and you get one hour to talk with uh, Austin Matthews. So you get one hour with them. And so the two coaches go. And the one coach is thinking, this is amazing. You know, I'm going to maybe ask him some, some questions and I'm going to sit there and he's got a pad, he's going to write things down. And he, wow, I get to spend an hour with Austin Matthews and ask him about his journey to the NHL and how I might be able to, how he could, with all of his experience and wisdom, guide me as a, guide me as a coach. And he's so excited and the, and the fool coach with him uh, isn't thinking like that. So the game is over, they get in the dressing room and there they get to sit down with the god of uh, hockey for the day, Austin Matthews. And the one coach who's like, wants to just hear, speak to me, Austin Matthews. Convey your wisdom to me. He doesn't get a chance to hear anything because the other coach won't shut up. Oh, hey, how's it going? You know, I've been coaching uh, Little League Hockey for quite a while. And, you know, here's the last game. Here's what I did. Here's my strategy. Uh, this one time there was this line. And here's what I think. And the other thing I think, and, you know, I've been watching the Leafs for quite a while. I've been a fan. Oh, boy, I tell you, I can't wait for them to win, win the next cup. I think it's been, I, actually, I think it was before I was born. But anyways, that's besides the point. The point is that now that I'm here, here's what I'm thinking. It's the first few verses. This picture Solomon gives, the two postures of how to, how to approach God. And I'm going to tell you that here's his point in bringing this up because he's looking for meaning. That's the, that's the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's looking for meaning. The pathway to meaning, the pathway to identity is to desire God. Here's the bad news. We are not born with a nature that actually desires God. This text is provoking us to come to worship with a real sense of awe and wonder and reverence. And, oh God, speak to me, guide me. Recalibrate the way that I think. I'm made of dirt, so I am open to your recalibration. Oh God, guide me, lead me. Help me raise my children. Help me love my spells. Help me care for those in my community. Oh God, would you recalibrate this heart, this mind, so that I can align with you, oh God, creator. This is what he's provoking. The problem is none of us actually want to do that because we want to be our own God. We want to be our own creator. This is the old nature of, of our sin that even after we place our faith in Christ, it continually rears its ugly head. And so it's the sacrifice of fools. The fool is just going through the motions of church. Notice who this fool is. Sometimes the Bible talks about fools who, who look around and say there is no God. And then God laughs and says that person's a fool. 
But this is not that fool. This is a fool who's going to worship. It's us. With the potential to be us. Just kind of going through the motions. Nah, show up enough so everybody stays off my back. Yeah, I go to church. Everything's fine. I love Jesus. Gracie Grace McGrace. Right? Leave me alone. Right? Just motions. But there's really no wonder. There's no amazement. There's no like kids, let me tell you. When I talk about when I tell you about the grace of Jesus and how he forgives our sins, my mind is blown because if you only knew what I've done. You got to come and hear about this Jesus or your friends. Those of you who are single and happily single and have no desire to be married and no desire for children, which is, a, which is a, a beautiful opportunity for you to just give your whole life to love other people. Same for you. It's not just the families. I'm, I, I Forgive me for uh, my default is often to go to like a family conversation. But for those of you who are not in that situation and happily, for you as well, this applies to come and to to desire this. But none of us do. That's the problem. That's why in verses 10 and 11, if you look back at them, Solomon revisits in verse 10 and 11. Look at it. You're not going to be happy with your money. There's not enough money. You're not going to be happy with your stuff. There's not enough stuff. You're going to just worry about your money and your stuff. You're going to try and protect your money and your stuff. You're going to constantly be worried about your money and your stuff. One political party does this. The other political party does that. And no matter which political party does whatever, it's a threat to your stuff. Just is, you know. It, it's it's diff, you know some. It's difficult to to, to uh, watch what's happening in the news. Uh, not which uh, not just with our neighbors to the south, but even in this own country, it's difficult um, to watch it. I often wonder. Th- what, I wonder what the wouldn't. Well, I wonder what the world would be like if we all woke up in the morning and thought, you know what, your your benefit at my expense. What would the world be like? I'll tell you what it'd be like. Heaven and the restoration. That's what's coming. But until, <laughs> but until then, uh, we have to deal with the here and now. And so the money and the, the, money and the stuff and the shiny things and the, the political messiahs or whatever it is that you're putting your trust in that they're going to fix it, they're not going to fix it. Listen, this is where the, Solomon says, the sacrifice of fools, the reason why it's so foolish is because we, what we need most in a world that is at unrest is to have our hearts recalibrated to marvel once again at the grace of God in Jesus Christ and have our hearts uh, return to that rest. So here's the good news. See, that's the bad news. The bad news is we don't want God. But that's where pleasure is found. That's where meaning is found. That's where the rest is found. That's where the identity is found in his grace. The problem is, even for those of us who've placed our faith in Christ, wow, our hearts wander. You know, wow, that terminology of us being sheep is so accurate as we wander off onto some stupid cliff and go, well, the grass looks pretty green over here. I think I'll garner my identity and and meaning over here. We do it all the time. And so here's the good news. God's response from the very moment that mankind rejected him was not to destroy us, not to abandon us, not to reject us. It was to move towards us. He comes in Jesus Christ, not just to rescue us, to rescue, renew, reform, restore. Jesus Christ, how fitting that he was a carpenter, because he's a renovation expert. Everything Jesus does starts with re. He's basically in the business of redoing our hearts and our minds and our lives, so that in this world that you're about to head back into when you leave those doors on Monday, which is that there's tremendous unrest, you though, children of God, resting in the grace of Jesus, have tremendous rest 
right in the middle of a scenario when you should really not have much rest. That's the glorious gift of the gospel. So you're, even though your old nature wants nothing to do with God, by grace and faith you are united to him and your new nature precisely desires God. Your new nature desires the rest in God, is liberated and free to actually enjoy all of the good things in life without making them God. See, Jesus is the wisdom of Solomon personified. Jesus provided everything for you that this text is asking from you. This text is asking you to come to worship God with a heart that is oriented to listen and obey. And you're hit or miss on that. More miss than hit, actually. I'm so offended, preacher. You don't know how sanctified I am. You're terrible. Okay, because I'm terrible. I know that because I'm terrible. Oh, well, you're projecting. Just because you're terrible and selfish doesn't mean I am. Yes, it does. It just means in a different way. We all have our, we all have our own flavor of being terrible and sinful. I'm not talking down to you. I'm appealing to you as a selfish guy. I'm, you understand? We're all in the same place of wanting to make these little things the thing that satisfies us. Jesus is the wisdom of God personified. He, he did this text. The text says, come before God and shama. Listen with the intent to obey. Jesus listened perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. He loved perfectly. Jesus stood against oppression perfectly. Jesus stood up for the oppressed perfectly. Jesus operated with generous justice perfectly. Jesus loved the outcast perfectly. Jesus sat with the person that you wouldn't even talk to because you're in your own self-absorption. All you're thinking about is, how am I doing and my friends and my relationship and my life. You're so curved inward. You're like a snail shell. Jesus loved them all perfectly. And then he died for our foolishness. And as he died for our foolishness, our selfishness, our arrogance, and our naivety and our sin, he rose on the third day, and then he gives that perfect track record to us. So that God, even though we can be all of these things that I'm saying, and you're all, and as, I wish you could see what I'm seeing, because every time I say things, basically the whole place nods like, yes, I totally do that. Okay, so just in case you were afraid of nodding, and you're like wanting to wink at me because you don't want to nod, just nod, because everybody's nodding. This is the... Jesus, the resurrection means that he not only, not only does he hand uh, his perfect record to us, but now we're on a lifetime trajectory of him reforming and renewing us. So that this text, as we look back on it through a cross-shaped lens, now it doesn't crush you because you're not showing up to worship to Shema. It doesn't crush you. Now it guides you. Now it's a loving guide for you. And this is actually, according to the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, this is what the Spirit of God who is in you is building in you. So that this actually more and more is going to describe you. Because it's not simply a cold prescription for you. This is actually a description of the new you. How you would come. The old you comes like a fool. Or doesn't come because you're a fool. Hey, wait a minute. Don't call me, don't call me a fool. This is legalism. You're saying come to... What? No. Again, go back to Solomon's wisdom. You're made of dirt. You're not going to be here long. The omnipotent creator of the universe has saved you and has cleansed you of all of your sin and has given you a, and has given you a, uh, and has given you a, a clean record. And so then when he says, come worship me, what do you think God is doing? Is God a cosmic legalist that says, come worship me because I'm needy? God is trying to get something to you. What is he trying to get? The ability, the power for you to enjoy all things. That's where this text goes. Because what would it look like? So what does this renewal look like that Jesus is doing? When you look at verse 18, 
Solomon takes all of the things in life that were previously called meaningless and suddenly he says they're meaningful. He says, behold, in verse 18, he says, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work. What? Is is Solomon a schizophrenic? Because for five chapters he's been telling us that's meaningless and now he's saying, oh, I think it's fitting. But what's the context for it being fitting? You see, when you're united to Christ, when you marvel at his grace, when you come and you worship the omnipotent creator of the universe and you rest in the goodness of Jesus, you're liberated and free to enjoy things without worshiping things. If you, if, so if you don't worship him, you're still worshiping. This isn't a conversation. Some of you have come out of such legalism but any time I say anything like, come and worship Jesus, you just have this reaction like, don't tell me what to do. Well, then continue to be a fool. Worship a few times. I can't believe the, the preacher said, what happened to Paul, the, the grace preacher? I'm trying to get the grace of Jesus to you. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you to rest in it. Wow. This is what Solomon gives. He goes, you're looking for meaning and identity and fulfillment. Verse 18 says God gives you the power to enjoy all things. In other words, don't worship him and you don't have the power to enjoy. You're going to be in the the game of clamoring constantly, looking for the little mini messiahs to satisfy you. And they won't. This is actually giving us a, a picture in verse 18 here of having joy in the ordinary. Look at the things that Solomon says Oh, you know what's fitting? Eat, drink, find pleasure in your work. Just enjoy your life. It's like it's the most ordinary thing. But you want to know something? Ordinary is a curse word in North America. Ordinary is a curse word in the North American church. It's not just. It's. I'm not just. I'm not uh, poking. Uh, poking uh, at the uh, cultural icons who say, "No, don't live an ordinary life." And just, you know, love those that are around you and enjoy, and, and enjoy all things. You know, rise to the top and, you know, take over whatever field you happen to be in and run the thing. That's not just a cultural conversation. That's a North American church conversation. And we just baptize it by saying it's God's best. Well, you want God's best, don't you? Well, what does God's best mean? This is what it means. I'm reading it to you right now. God's best is you rest in his grace. And whether you have or you don't have, whether you're healthy or you're sick, it doesn't matter the circumstances of your life. There's a pervasive sense of joy and meaning and identity. There's a joy in the ordinary because you're marveling at God. That's God's best. But the North American conversation about God's best is a little more than what you have. Oh, you're sick? Well, then God's best is that you're well. Oh, you, you're, you're, you're just barely making your budget? Well, God's best is that you have more. That's, in, that's insanity. That's the exact opposite. That's everything Solomon's been arguing against for four years, for the last four uh, chapters. And I'm not saying, by the way, that the Bible's anti-success and, you know, strive to be mediocre. Kids, today's sermon is about lowering your expectations. Don't try hard. No, that's not it. The point is that God's grace liberates you so that you are not defined by success or failure. You're defined by the cross. You're free to succeed. And you're free to fail. The point is that there is a joy in the ordinary. This is the good news of what what, uh, the text gives us. Jesus echoes all of this, by the way. You say, ah, Paul, I think you're reading into Solomon a little too deeply. I'm going to quote Jesus, who revisited this entire conversation because Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus announced himself as greater than Solomon. 
And Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body, what you put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They're not sowing and reaping, and God is taking care of them. They're not gathering into barns. Your heavenly Father is feeding them. Are you more valuable than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add an hour to his lifespan? See, again, that's like Jesus is putting together a philosophical framework the same as Solomon. Well, you're going to add an hour to your life? You're made of dirt. Stop being so morbid. This is not being morbid. This is being rational. Thoughtful about mortality. And Jesus goes, you're not going to add an hour to your life of worrying about all this stuff. Jesus goes on to say, are you anxious about your clothing? You know, your needs, your physical needs. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They're neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God, who clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And I read that, and I am the person of little faith. Right? Do you know how much I worry? Way too much. Do you know how anxious I am? Way too anxious. Do you know how much of a control freak this guy is? It's embarrassing. It's... (laughs) it's really embarrassing so I'm the guy of little faith who who shows up like a fool in the presence of God you know don't go to him don't pray to him relate like he's not there and then let the stress build up enough and then I'm like then when I get in his presence I can't shut up oh God (laughs) let your words be few Jesus says look at these religious Pharisees over here they can't shut up because the trust isn't there But the gospel, it liberates us from all of this craziness and it brings us back into rest. Jesus goes on to say, your heavenly father knows what you need. So seek first him and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In other words, as Solomon put it, come into his presence to hear, to listen, to receive. This worship is about receiving. We gather to worship to receive. All the other gods of all the other religions do not give you anything when you worship them. Like, you go to give them something. That's votive worship. You know, my brother was traveling through, uh, brother uh, uh, Nelson and Kathy were traveling in, I think it was Thailand, and uh, they were going to these, you know, visiting these temples. So, what's going on? Let's see what's going on here. And as they were visiting these temples, they had all these little bowls, all to these different gods, and you'd, you'd give your offering for whatever you needed. I need health, give to the health god. I need money, give to the money god. I need this, give to this god. I need peace, give to this god. I mean, it was just... Every world religion operates where when you show up before the God, that God is not giving you anything. Church, our God, calls us into worship because in the worship, our God is giving to you in his grace, his forgiveness, his renewal, the recalibration of the heart, the recalibration of the mind, the recalibration of your ethics, the way you think, your core values. The way you view the world, the way you view your mortality, the way you think about your money, the way you think about your child rearing. As you come and you worship God, he is coming to you. As the creator of all things, to give to you. That's crazy. Come worship me. And in your worship of me, I will give you rest. Jesus says, come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why should anybody roll out a bed, on a nice warm bed on a Sunday morning? Why should they? There's no reason Except that our Jesus comes 
the one who is greater than Solomon, the one who fulfilled the work of Solomon, who reorients our hearts so that we can enter into the rest that Solomon is speaking about. And this is the glorious good news of the gospel. Because if we, if you're here and you're not a believer and you reject God's grace, or you're here and you are a believer, but you kind of wander from the rest of God's grace, then what you're going to do is, like this text, you're going to abuse God's gifts. And all these little things that God gives you to enjoy, you're going to look to them in, in, a, in, a, in a worship posture. Have you ever seen a small little child with a kitten? Or a puppy? Or a baby chick? And they get so excited, they squeeze it. And you're like, whoa! And you have to intervene. Because in your wisdom, you need to pry their little fingers back. Because in their excitement and naivety, they're squeezing the life out of it. Ecclesiastes 5 teaches us that apart from the grace of God and the rest of God, every good thing in your life, you're going to try to squeeze the life out of it. Like a naive little child trying to extract your meaning and your identity from it. You're going to squeeze your spouse to death. You're going to squeeze your friends to death. You're going to squeeze your kids to death. You're going to squeeze your job to death. You're going to squeeze your bank account to death. You're going to fill in the blank. You're going to squeeze it all to death. Your recreation, you're going to squeeze it to death. You're not free to enjoy it because you need it to give you something. We're like those little kids. But the good news of the Gospels, we're liberated from all of that. We have pleasure and rest in the ordinary because there is more than this fragile life that is under the sun. There is a God who created the sun. And he came in Jesus Christ. And he gives us, as we talked about last week, a handful of quietness in a world that clamors with two fistfuls of work curating their identity. And as those who have been liberated by God's grace, we are free to live outward-facing lives. We are free to give our time and to care for one another, and to cause the city to flourish by serving it with our guests. We're free to do all of this. Because God gives you the power to truly enjoy everything. Because in Jesus Christ, you don't need anything. And God gives you joy in sorrowful things. Because in Jesus Christ, you know he is restoring all things. Let's pray.